0: We are very appreciative for all of our visitors. We do know we have a number of visitors from our sister congregations due to the weather, but we want you to know we appreciate your being here and we want to invite you to study along with us as we consider a very valuable portion of God's Word. Tonight I want to talk about the topic of this generation. And I put a picture of four generations of men on the screen so that you might begin to think about a generation of people. You know, each generation has its own unique set of characteristics. If you begin to think about those from our lifetime, most of us will probably think back to what has been referred to as the greatest generation, those who were of that World War II era, men who were devoted to country, who were very devout in their faith. And following them came what was known as the baby boomers. And I happened to be a part of that uh, generation of people who were born in 1945 through 1964. After them was what's called Generation X, born in 1964 through 1976. After them, there was for a while a group known as Generation Y. I don't know, I guess they we're going to go X, Y, Z. But uh, they were supplanted by another term called the Millennials. And that is those from 1982 to 2004. And uh, you say, well, I, I don't know what you're driving at when you're trying to talk about a generation. Uh, let me explain to you that there are people who actually study each generation and their unique features, their characteristics. For instance, they try to figure out how you're going to buy, and they want to target a certain age group, and they set their marketing techniques for that. Political figures, they want to study how each generation votes, and they want to make it easier or sometimes even more difficult for certain ones And I've heard a lot recently about those who employ, particularly those known as millennials. How do you manage a group of people who think differently and respond differently and has unique characteristics? In fact, if I were to ask some of you who teach some of these, do they show some unique characteristics? But I'm not interested about management. I'm not interested in politics. Nor am I interested in marketing. What about the spiritual concerns? What about the souls of those in each of these generations? Brother Mike just read to us from Luke chapter 7, verses 31 through 35. And I want to direct your attention back there for just a moment. And Jesus' question, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation What are the unique features? And he says it's almost like a child's game, that you have a child out there, and they're playing a flute, and the children who are there, they're not dancing around, they're not doing anything, and then they play another game, and they said, uh, uh, we mourned to you, you didn't weep, it's almost as if you're trying to get someone else to respond in a certain way, and... God sent John the Baptist. And rather than responding to John the Baptist and the way he delivered God's message, they said because he didn't eat and he didn't drink because he had this austere lifestyle, they said he had a demon. On the other hand, Jesus followed just right after him and he came and he did eat and he did drink. They said he's a glutton and a wine-bibber a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, you couldn't please these people. They wouldn't accept a man like John the Baptist, nor would they accept Jesus Christ. Even though their deliveries were given somewhat differently, they possessed the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But you know, as I go a little bit further in the Bible, I can find Jesus again bringing up the idea of This generation, in Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 29. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say to them, or say, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet, Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. And then the Lord brings up the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba. How she came to hear Solomon. He, he said, a greater than Solomon is here. He brings up the preaching of Jonah to the Ninevites. And he said, a greater than Jonah is here. This generation does not want to hear. This generation is looking for a sign. And Jesus is saying, there's just one sign going to be given. That would be the resurrection of Christ as I proceed further to the establishment of the church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 40, as Peter and the apostles are preaching, reflected also in Philippians 2 and verse 15, he said, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Or, Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, that you may become... Blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You see, as you start looking at that generational thing in the first century, you find out those generations have spiritual characteristics. And oh, how valuable it is for you and I to look back at bygone generations, previous generations, and see how God dealt with those of those generations. The writer of the book of Hebrews wrote that book. He recognized the temptation that was being placed in front of a group of God's people and how it would be easy for that generation to give up and to give in. And he says, I want you to look back to that generation whom God led out of that Egyptian bondage by Moses. He said, beginning with verse 7, Therefore is the... Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of the trial of the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts and they've not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. He said, Look back. There was a generation to whom God spoke, and they were rebellious. They had hard hearts. They didn't listen. And God said, They don't get to go into my rest. Don't you miss that rest. Well, tonight, what I want to do is to look at two things very simple. I want us to look at the characteristics of this generation the world that you and I live in, United States. State of Tennessee, the city of McMinnville, Warren County. What is our society like? What is our generation like? And then number two, I want to look at some corrections from God's word to this generation. Now obviously, as I begin, I want you to understand that our country is diverse and divided. I don't think anybody would deny that. It's diverse in the sense that you have some good people, some bad people. We are divided in the sense there are many people who hold on to what we would generally call traditional values, and there are some who are insistent that we reject those values, and we are in a cultural war. But you know, it's always been that way. I want to take you back to 1 Kings chapter 19, and I want you to notice the attitude that Elijah had. You remember God had called him to go before Ahab and Jezebel and there was this great contest on the top of Mount Carmel and God brought about a great distinction between right and wrong with the prevailing of Elijah over the prophets of Baal. However, Jezebel responded by saying, I'm going to take that prophet's life. And Elijah ran. And he's crying out to God and he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Sometimes it appears that in this generation we're all alone. And yet God reminds him in verse 18, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. I want you to understand as you and I look at our generation, I recognize that as I present our generation, it's not all bad people. There are some good, godly, faithful folks who want to do what is right. But there are characteristics of this generation which are predominant. And one of the major ones is the confusion that exists in moral matters and right and wrong. Our world today does not seem to have a grasp, an understanding of the fact that there are things that make things right or wrong. For instance, if you bring up any moral issue, someone will say, Well, who am I to judge? Who am I to make that decision? Doesn't matter what the topic is. Because people today do not have a basis of a right and wrong. You know, in Isaiah chapter five and verse twenty, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, and bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. They don't understand the distinction. And so for them, it really becomes a matter of choice, what I want to do. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, as God is revealing the condition of at least some in the city of Nineveh, some have suggested this is perhaps a reference to the children, but he says there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left. They just really don't know how to make a righteous distinction. But in, when you get to Deuteronomy 29, I, I'm often drawn to the book of Deuteronomy as the children of Israel are there in the plains of Moab, ready to cross over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And he's brought Moses there to give them this last restatement to this new generation ready to go in. He's talking about people who hear God's message. He says when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart and says, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart. Everything will be fine with me. And then notice the way he reasons in the latter part of verse 19. As though the drunkard could be included with a sober. I'd suggest to you that is exactly the idea of not only in our country, not only in our state, not only in our county, but even in our city where some people believe that a person can stand before God and be a drunkard and he can be considered just as faithful as a man who's sober. You see, we live in a world today that's confused because they have no standard of belief. What that has resulted in is a lack of respect for life. It's resulted since 1973 that 58 million people, children, innocent ones, have been slaughtered. I know when you mention 58 million, that sort of is just a huge number. But if you take the population of the state of Texas population of the state of Tennessee, the population of Missouri, the population of South Carolina, the population of Colorado, you still don't have 58 million people. That many innocent children have been murdered in our country. When I go to Psalm 106, verse 38, and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. The United States, the state of Tennessee, and folks, even Warren County has blood that flows. Deuteronomy 21.9, So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 34, Also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. I have not found it out by secret search, but plainly on all these things. It's not as if someone is murdering someone in secret. This is very open, very public. Our society is also, our generation, is marked by promiscuity. I know that's not something that people really want to talk about, but it's a fact. It doesn't matter what television show you're watching, there's going to come on an advertisement, the whole purpose of which is to try to put lewdness and put some sort of sexual enticement in front of you, whether it's the Hardee's commercial or whether it's a commercial for some sort of of other things, they're everywhere. And when I get to Romans chapter 13, verse 13, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, goes on verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. We need to be the kind of people who turn our backs to this. In Jeremiah 5 and verse 8, he described, I believe he's talking about their idolatry, but it evidently was very plain as well. Morally, they were like well-fed, lusty stallions, everyone named after his neighbor's wife chapter 13 verse 27 I have seen your adulteries your lustful names the lewdness of your harlotry the abomination on the hills and the fields woe to you o Jerusalem when will you still not be made clean At some point in time we've got to ask the question about our generation is this not a mark of it a characteristic of it Hebrews 13:4 said let marriage is to be Honorable among all and the bed undefiled, the fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Our society is also noted for its covetousness. In fact, this has become an acceptable sin to the point where people feel like it's all right to want more, to want something someone else has. After all, our government's gotten involved. It sells lottery tickets the error of which is covetousness. Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that's your neighbor's. Jeremiah 6, verse 13 says, from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. Even from the priest, everyone deals falsely. The prophet even to the priest. I thought it was interesting this past week. There's these false teachers named Kenneth Copeland. I can't think of the other guy's name. They were sitting and discussing why they needed $70 million airplanes. They had a, what they felt like was a legitimate discussion. Oh, we need this because we don't need to be flying around with a whole bunch of heathens. We need our own private plane doesn't matter whether they're religious figures or not religious figures. We live in a society of covetousness. And Jesus said a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. But we also live in a world, a generation of a perverted religion. We live in a, a nation. We live in a state. We live in a county. We live in a city where there's all kinds of denominations And there are people who believe that you can design your own religion. You want this? Have it. If you don't want it, don't have it. In Colossians chapter 2, he's going to talk about the doctrines and the commandments of men. But I remind you in 1 Kings chapter 12, you have an excellent illustration of what happens when people do that. You have God... After Solomon passed, his son Rehoboam has the opportunity to leave, but God had already decided that it was time to take it away from the house of Solomon. And he gave the northern ten tribes to Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And Jeroboam decided he would change the object of worship. He'd change the place of worship. He'd change the priesthood. He would change the time all to please himself. I've been to Dan two or three times and stood there where the remnants of that northern temple sat. And how that Jeroboam said, oh, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Worship here in Dan, contrary to what God said. Colossians 2 says, according to the... Commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, or will worship, if you will. False humility neglect of the body, but of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. The word translated self-imposed religion literally means self-designed, self-directed religion, self-directed worship. What I want to do that's what we live in today. That's what this generation has decided. If it wants to have a woman preacher, we'll put a woman preacher up here. If we want to have instrumental music, we'll have instrumental music. If we want to have this or that, we'll just do whatever we want to do. Religion today is focused on the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1.25 says... They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. It focuses on the here and now versus the hereafter. There's so many people concerned about climate change. They're concerned about the physical things of life, injustices to man, and there's nothing wrong with addressing the injustices of man. There's nothing wrong with being a good steward of this world which God gave us. But folks, this world will not survive, but your soul will. First Corinthians fifteen thirty-two. Paul, in the middle of discussing the resurrection, said, "If after the manner, manner of men I have fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me?" If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's no hereafter, why? James 4.14 says, Whereas you do not know what will happen on tomorrow. What is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. People are focused on the short time here rather than on the eternity. It ignores the divinely given roles for women. We actually have congregations of the Lord's Church. They're using a phrase to describe themselves now. They're calling themselves egalitarian, which generally means they're going to let women preach, they're going to let women lead the singing, they're going to let women lead the prayers, In spite of the fact that 1 Timothy 2 verse 8 says, I therefore desire that the men pray everywhere. And in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach nor to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. What you come down to is recognizing that our generation, the one we live in today, is not following God's will. Now, I know you're probably wringing your hand and saying, wow, things are just really, really bad. Let's talk about some correction for just a moment. I'm going to try to go through this quickly. A news flash. this generation is not unique. We're not the worst generation that's ever walked the face of the earth. We're not of the most sinful generation. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 9 says, that which... Has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Verse 15 of chapter 3. That which has already been and what is to be has already been. And God will require an account of what is past. Chapter 7 verse 10. Do not say, where were the former days better than these? For you do not uh, inquire wisely concerning this. Why do we look back and say, well, those days were great, as if today is the worst. You see, you've got to deal with the generation you're in, but you've got to recognize this has been done before. The Bible has an answer for every generation, and it's the same answer. Someone says, how do we teach the millennials? You teach them the truth. Several months ago, I was at a funeral home and a gentleman walked up to me who lives in a large metropolitan area and he was trying to tell me how that we ought to be dealing with the millennials here. And I told him, I said, our millennials are doing real well. He said, oh, but you've got to understand, they're different. I said, ours, we just teach the Bible to them like we do everybody else. Oh, but that won't work. And I said, it's working here. We've got some great millennials among our number here. You know, 2 Peter one three says, God's divine power has granted unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and virtue. I'd love to explore that passage a little bit more. Maybe that's a good one for your personal Bible study. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It doesn't say whether he's of that generation or the next generation. James 1.21 says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls It's that same implanted word which is able to save the soul of everyone. But someone says, you've got to realize our generation is different. There was a time in the past when people would listen. Maybe. There's also been a time in the past when people wouldn't listen. I think about Ezekiel as he The Bible says set by the river Kibar with the captives, the exiles. And there were those who were saying, don't worry, we're going to get to go back home soon. And God says, you've got to go tell these people, no, that's not going to happen. You've got to repent of your ways. In Ezekiel 2 verse 5, and as for them, were they here or were they refuse? For they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. What do you do if people won't listen? You still tell them what the Bible says. Chapter 3, verse 11. And go and get to the captives of the children of your people and speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they will hear or whether they refuse. You know, you can go and stand in front of the board of Mayor and ottoman a dozen times and you can say, the Bible still says, wine is a mocker and strong drink a broiler and whoever errs thereby is not wise. At least one thing they will know is that members of the Lord's church are going to stand up for what is right. And there's a reason for us doing that even if they refuse. When you get to Ezekiel 33, verses 7 through 9, he's talking about People who are doing wrong. And what do you do? Son of man, I have made you a watchman of the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear the word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked of his wicked way. And that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked... To turn from his way and he does not turn from his way he shall die in his iniquity but you will have delivered your soul you see God's word still says what it says and we must provide it to people. you yourself must make a decision to follow God regardless of what others might do Ezekiel 18:20 the soul that sins it shall die you won't bear anyone else's sin in Luke chapter 9 verse 23 we all have to take up our own cross and follow him. I like the way the Lord put it when uh, Peter's asking about John he's you know what's going to happen to him and the Lord what what about this man verse 22 Jesus said to him, "If I remain that he, uh, he remain until I come what is that to you? you follow me. you follow me." Jonah showed us what it means to be a righteous man in his generation. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Jonah, or excuse me, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Do we live in a sinful generation? Yes, we live in a sinful generation. Here's a news flash. Every generation has been a sinful generation. Can one be saved from a sinful generation? Yes. In every generation there have been God's plan to save man. And what you have to do is accept God's word and follow it. Appreciate your kind attention. Tonight we're going to sing this invitation song. And it is to urge you, to encourage you, that if you're... Life is not right with God. You're not yet a Christian. Come forward, be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you are a child of God and you look and you see sin in your life, your soul's too precious to neglect it. Would you come while together we stand and sing?